Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. I like to read John seventeen seventeen on the air quite a bit. We all are familiar with the passage in John eight thirty two, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What is it talking about? Free from what? Well, thirty four lets us know he's talking about being made free from sin. So we all recognize the fact that we have to believe and follow the truth to be made be made free from sin. But John seventeen seventeen, Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So we want to follow the truth, but how do we know what the truth is? It's not our feelings. God doesn't tell us directly what the truth is. <laughs> you know, he's not going to tell you what parking spot to take at the Walmart, for example. I heard somebody say that one time. He's not going to say to a woman, I want you to be a gospel preacher, because he's already said in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, it's a shame for women to speak in the church. Sanctify through them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Bible is going to define for us what the truth is. Not what we want, not what we think, not what we reason out is is logical necessarily. Of course, what the Bible teaches is logical. I mean, it's it's div, it's divine logical. It's the most logical any guy anybody could think of. But well, I run into a lot of people that think they reason it out themselves. What's logical to them, and so it causes them to ignore what God says. What we've been talking about the last several weeks, if conditional statements in the Bible, primarily in the New Testament. Here's three verses in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 18, that has this word if at least three, maybe four times. He says, but though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if, against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Barely that, when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. What's Paul saying there? Well, one of the things he's saying is, is that at least sometimes, he preached the gospel without charge. Now, not all the times. First Corinthians 9, he defends his right and other Bible teachers to take support. No doubt about that. The, the Bible authorizes, the New Testament authorizes. People who, who give up secular work, for example, as he's talking about uh, in First Corinthians 9, to preach the gospel, they have a right to get that pay replaced that they would have gotten from the secular work that they gave up. That's, for example, about the only way somebody could go preach in what we call a foreign mission field. He can't take his job with him. Now, maybe he can now in the days of remote working, but he couldn't back then. So they had to be supported. But some of the time, and remember, Paul is perhaps the second most famous gospel preacher of all time, second only to Jesus Christ. At least some of the time, Paul preached the gospel without charge. How many preachers you see doing that today, preaching the gospel without charge? Most gospel preachers are, feel like it's their right to get as, the very most amount of money they can. And some of these TV preachers probably make over a million a year. They're nothing like Paul, who many times preached the gospel without charge. If you are listening to this program and you think of yourself as a gospel preacher, ask yourself, am I like Paul? Do I preach the gospel without charge at least some of the time? I'm not talking about necessarily all the time, do it. What about like Paul? He preached the gospel without charge some of the time. He 
remember, May 10th, Acts chapter 18, to make a living. Let's move on to the next if statement. 1 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15. I'm basically just going through these in the, in the order they come in the Bible. It says there, doth not even nature itself teach you that if, there's a word if, a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. You see the two if statements? Well, what is that Bible passage teaching with those if statements? The if is a conditional statement. And the force of the if means this. If a man has long hair, it's a shame. And if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. You know, the, a lot of people don't even realize this passage is in there. I was talking to a, a Christian young lady not too long ago. She had long hair. And I said, did you know the Bible teaches that that a, a, a lady used to have long hair? I don't think she knew. She definitely didn't know where the passage was. She didn't really know, even though she's a Christian, that the Bible taught that a woman ought to have long hair. She definitely didn't know where the passage was. So you, a lot of people do not realize, a lot of believers don't realize that passage is in there. That a man ought not have long hair, that a woman ought to have long hair. That's the force of the word except. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877 655-6755. The lines are wide open. The number to call is six, excuse me, the number to call is 877-655-6755. How about another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 34? It says, and if any, if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Well, if you read the rest of this section, verses 17 through 34, the whole section, you would see is Paul is saying, when you come together in the church service, when the whole church has come together in one place, verse 23, don't use that occasion to eat a common meal. By common meal, I mean a meal to satisfy hunger. The only meal we should be eating in the church service, in our worship to God, is the Lord's Supper. If you're hungry, eat at home, is what he's saying in verse 34. Don't come to the church service to try to satisfy your hunger. That's not the point of worshiping God is to satisfy your hunger for food. Eat before you come or eat after you get back home. What we're going to eat in the uh, church service is going to be the Lord's Supper. And it's not intended to satisfy hunger. It's a ceremony to help us remember to show the Lord's death till he come, 1 Corinthians 11. To remember it. To be thankful for it. To think about what Jesus has done for us. That Small piece of bread and that fruit of the vine represents the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And it's supposed to, when we partake of that, it's supposed to help us remember his death, what it means for us to be thankful for it, to be sorry for our sins because that's what caused it. That's the force of the if statement. If you're hungry, eat at home. Don't come for fun. Don't come for fun, food, and frolic. Don't come to satisfy your hunger. You come to do the Lord's Supper. You want to have a meat and a meal for, for fun or a meal to satisfy hunger? Do that before or after you come. At home. That's what it says. I didn't write that. God wrote that. And then the next if statement I find in 1 Corinthians is chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Here's how that passage reads. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein ye stand. By which also you are saved if, that's the if statement, 
if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. So Paul said, hey, I preached the gospel unto you. And you're going to be saved by that gospel if you keep in memory what I preach unto you. Basically saying, and the opposite side of the coin is you'll believe in vain. So they had become believers. They had become Christians. They received the gospel. They stood in the gospel, verse 1 says. The gospel that Paul declared, the truth. He says, you'll be saved by that. He's talking about eternal salvation. If you keep in memory what I preach to you, the the implication is, based upon the if statement, is that you don't keep it in memory. Even though you were saved in it, received it, standing in it, you don't keep it in memory, you won't be saved. You'll lose your salvation. You will have believed in vain, is the conclusion for verse 2. They became believers. They had received the truth, the gospel. They were standing in the gospel. But if they didn't keep it in memory, if they didn't keep, you know, if they didn't continue in it, is basically the idea, then their belief would have been vain. They would lose their salvation. They would be lost. Now, I know a lot of people want to believe once saved, always saved, because they prefer that they can just live any old way they want to and still be saved. But the Bible teaches on practically every page of the Bible conclusively. That's false. False to the core. It, once saved, always saved is something somebody made up because they want to live any old way they want to and still be saved. The Bible doesn't teach it. Not anywhere close to it. And that passage is one of them that doesn't teach it, that teaches against it, I might say. And then if you have 1 Corinthians 15, 15 through 17, it says, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. Here's that if statement. If the dead rise not, there's the if statement, then is, then is, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain. The only hope we have is in the resurrection of Christ. If Christ wasn't really raised from the dead, then all that we're doing in religion is for naught. There's no way we're going to be saved without the resurrection of Christ. Now, he's basically making the point. Some back then were saying the dead won't raise. They're not going to be raised. He said, well, if the dead are not raised from the dead, then Christ would be included in that. He didn't wasn't raised from the dead. And that would mean if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. The if statement is that the resurrection of Christ is ultra important to our salvation. We can't be saved without the resurrection of Christ. Of course, the, the we'll say the most important thing is the death of Christ. That's what pays for our sins. But let's don't forget, without the resurrection, this is saying, our faith is in vain. We can't be saved either. Because if Christ was not raised, like was prophesied and like was recorded in the Bible, then how can you trust anything? A lot of, even heads of seminaries don't even believe in the resurrection of Christ. <laughs> and they're the head of a preacher school, you might say. Well, Christ was raised. They don't want to believe in anything miraculous, but Christ was raised. Perhaps the greatest miracle of all time. I can't think of one more important than that. If you have a Bible question or comment, please give us a call at 877-655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877-655-6755. How about 1 Corinthians 16, 22? It says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha, accursed. He's going to be lost. You know, so what this passage is saying is, to be saved, you got to love Christ. Yeah. Sometimes people will repeat the conditions of salvation and they'll leave off this particular condition, and it's perhaps the most important one. 
I mean, love is pretty much the basis for everything. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. In John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So love is the motivation for obedience to Christ. So it's more than just faith. You got to have to be saved. You got to have love too. He says, if you don't suppose a person has faith in Christ, believes in Christ, but he doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says anathema. He's going to be lost. He's going to be accursed. So love is just as important a condition to meet the salvation as faith is. A lot of people say you're saved by faith only. We have a lot of passages that say you got to love God to be saved. They're just ignoring every one of those if they teach that you got to, all you got to do is be, is believe to be saved. All of the passages that teach you got to love God to be saved. Can you imagine somebody getting to heaven? He believes in Jesus, but he hates Jesus. He doesn't love Jesus and he's going to make it to heaven. Well, that's actually what people are saying when they say you're saved by faith only. They're saying the people that believe in Jesus, but hate Jesus, but hate God are going to go to heaven anyway because they have faith. I know that doesn't make any sense. And that's why I brought it up. This passage shows you got to love God, love Jesus to be saved. You can't be saved without love. Love is really the basis for obeying everything else. As I said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Shows if you don't keep his commandments, you don't love Jesus like you ought to. Debbie from Texas, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. What churches preach that you can lose your salvation? Well, the most, and I don't mean to be a smart aleck, but the most important church that, let me finish and then you'll see what I mean. Uh, I don't want you to think I'm a smart aleck. The most important church that teaches against once saved, always saved is the church you read about in the Bible. All of those local churches you can read about in the Bible, in the New Testament, every single one of them taught against once saved, always saved. Now, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. But I I don't know any local church that preaches that. And if so, what churches are they? i tell you what I'm going to do, Debbie. If you don't mind, Mm -hmm. I've got your number on the screen. I'm not going to repeat it. But I'm going to try to call you sometime after the program, and maybe we can figure out exactly where you live. And I'll see if I can't find a congregation close to you that preaches the truth on that subject. How about that, Debbie? And you can either visit there or not visit there. Okay. Talk to you later, Debbie, and thank you for your call. Mm -hmm. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11? It says, For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Now, I wish we had time to develop this whole ch- whole chapter, 2 Corinthians 3, but basically what's going on here is he's comparing and contrasting the Old Testament law to the New Testament law. And he's saying the thing that's done away was glorious. That's the Old Testament law. He calls it the Old Testament in that context. And the thing that remaineth is called the New Testament in that context. It's It's glorious. It's more glorious. So the thing done away is the Old Testament. The thing that remains is the New Testament. I mean, we've got a whole slew of passages that teach we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. We're under the New Testament law. If you would like me to send you that list via email, they all teach. And there's lots of them, at least a dozen or more, that conclusively prove that to be pleasing to God today, we don't, the Old Testament law is no longer binding. That's why circumcision is no longer binding, animal sacrifices, why it's, why it's okay to eat pork and catfish when that was a sin in the Old Testament? It's because the Old Testament's no longer binding. We're under the law of Christ, the New Testament law. Instead of doing those things, we have to do things like 
baptism and the Lord's Supper that weren't mentioned in the Old Testament. I'd be glad to send you that list. I'm going to give out my cell phone number at the end of the program, Lord willing. And you uh, then you get that and text me and say, I would like you to email me that list of passages that prove we don't have to keep any of the Old Testament law anymore to please please God. It's just New Testament law. Do we still study the Old Testament? Yeah, but not because it's our law for today, but because the New Testament quotes the Old Testament quite frequently. So you study the Old Testament so you can understand better the New Testament, which is our law for today. That's what this is talking about, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The fact we're not under the Old Testament law anymore, we're under the New Testament law. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, this idea of new creature is really, if you think about it, the same analogy as the born again kind of phraseology. A person is born again? Well, how about a little baby that's physically born? He's a new creature, a new person, isn't he? A person then that's born again spiritually, he becomes a new creature spiritually. He's the same old physical self, but he should be a brand new person spiritually. He's a new creature. He's putting that old man away. He's crucifying that old man. Uh, Romans chapter 6, he's going to quit serving sin and start serving Christ, start serving righteousness. Romans chapter 6. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You have to be in Christ to be a new creature, though. Now, that raises an interesting question. How do you get to be in Christ? Because he says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. That would mean if you're not in Christ, you're not a new creature. A lot of people know about that, but they don't really know what you have to do to get in Christ. How do you get into Christ? Well, Romans 6.3 and Galatians 3.27 answer that. Here's Romans 6.3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So how do you get into Jesus Christ? It says you're baptized into Jesus Christ. Like, we're talking about belief, faith only a while ago. If a person believes, but he's not been baptized, well, I'll give him a credit. He's a believer, but he's not in Christ. Because the only way you can get in Christ is to be baptized into Christ. And the only way then you can be a new creature is if you're in Christ. So you have to be baptized into Christ to become a new creature. So if you're a believer, but you haven't been baptized, you're not in Christ. You've never been baptized into Christ. It's just another way to show that you got to be baptized to be saved, to be in Christ. Of course, a lot of people want to reject that, but this verse, there's nothing ambiguous about this verse. It says to be a new creature, to be a Christian, you got to be in Christ. Well, we all knew that. But then Romans 6, 3 and Galatians 3, 27 says you're baptized into Christ. So until you've been baptized, you're not in Christ because you got to get baptized to get into Christ. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It would take, it would be, it'd be very hard to misunderstand that, but people want to misunderstand the Bible because they want to think of themselves as saved, but not having to obey Christ because that's the hard thing to repent and to obey. I don't want to do that. I just want to be saved like I am. It's easy to believe in Christ. You just say, I believe in Christ and accept him mentally in your head. Nothing to that. They don't want to repent and obey. That's the hard thing. And they want to say, I'm saved just by believing. I don't, that's the easy thing. I don't have to do the hard thing. Repent and obey. They want to get out of that. But of course, the Bible won't let you out of it. How about Galatians 1 9? Well, let, before I read that, let me mention the number again. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877 655 6755. The number to call, the lines are wide open again. If you have a Bible question or comment, it's 877 655 6755. Here's Galatians 1 9, our next if statement. As we said before, so say I now, uh, 
So say I now again, if, there it is, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now this contradicts 99% of the preaching out there. I mean, you may not realize it, but it does. Because, for example, just making a simple, it's probably an oversimplification. You have a Baptist church and a Methodist church. Why? The Methodist church teaches sprinkling for baptism is okay. Baptism of babies. The Baptist church says, no, you got to immerse believers. So you have two different doctrines. They have two different churches because of it. But guess what? Both churches say that the other church is okay. <laughs> but Paul said, if you preach a different gospel than what he preached, then you're going to be accursed or lost. I mean, Paul, I don't think, could be a Baptist or Methodist because they're going to teach that everybody's okay. And Paul's going to say, no, if you preach something different than me, different than the original gospel, you're going to be lost. You're going to be accursed. So if the Bible teaches that baptism is the immersion of believers, then you got to teach and stand for that, the immersion of believers. You can't go around here saying, well, sprinkling for babies is okay because that's preaching something different than the New Testament gospel. And he says, if you do that, you're going to be accursed. You think, was Paul kind of strict, wasn't he? Well, I guess he was, if you think about it. But, of course, he's representing God. It really didn't, wasn't Paul saying that. First Corinthians 2.13, he says, basically, God gave him the words to say. God's really the author of Galatians 1.9. Paul is just the pen, the pen, the guy who penned it. It's kind of like the secretary for the chief executive officer. He dictates the letter. She types it for him. Well, yeah, she signs her initials on there, say she typed it, but he signed the letter because it's his words. He dictated. God dictated the words of the Bible. The the writers like Peter and Paul and John, they're more like the secretary. They just wrote down what he told them to write. So it's really that God said that, not just Paul. And then Galatians 2.17 says, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Again, another passage that it teaches against one saved, always saved. They're all over the place. You're trying to be justified by Christ, but you're found a sinner. You're going to be lost. If you become a Christian, then later fall into sin, you're going to be lost. That's the point of that passage. Let's go to another call here. Ken from Washington. Go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Hey, Baptist Kenny. Geez, I lost your email, man. I, I, I missed our conversation. Hey, let me ask you. Um, who, who has the authority to abolish God's laws? God does. And so he, he said, in, yeah, he said in Ephesians 2, 15, that, that it, Jesus abolished in his flesh, meaning in his death, the law of commandments and ordinances. So God abolished that law, according to Ephesians 2, 15, when he died on the cross, when he died, just like Colossians 2, 14 said, he nailed it to the cross. So well, just, yeah, God, he, you know, he, like, he, you know, Go ahead, Ken. And by but the way, my email is Pat Donahue at Pat Donahue at BellSouth.net if you want to contact me. Go wait, ahead, wait, Ken. Don't slow, slow that. Wait, what is it again? Pat Donahue at BellSouth.net would be a good way to reach me. Always on email. Pat, let me write that down real quick. Well, go ahead. We'll talk about that later. We don't. I'm gonna have to go off. I'm gonna have to go off there in a minute. What's? Did you want to make another comment? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, on the uh, nail it to the cross. You got to keep on reading the rest of the scripture. Just keep on yeah. reading about ten. About ten verses. I have now. read the rest of the scripture the and the rest of men. The doctrine yeah, no, of no, men is no. what he nailed to the cross. No, no. When he said he nailed it to the cross, one thing he mentioned two verses later was the Sabbath. So one of the laws he nailed to the cross was the Sabbath. That's not a doctrine of men. The Sabbath law, the seventh day Sabbath, is one of the laws he nailed to the cross in Colossians two. So it's definitely not the doctrines of men. To the contrary, it's 
he abolished laws, just like the United States for about 20 years had a had a national 55 mile per hour speed limit law, but they abolished it. They had the right to abolish it because they're the ones that made the law. God made the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. He had the right to abolish it. And there's at least a dozen or more passages saying that he did. But we got people out there. They don't really care what God says. They are intent. They want the Old Testament law to be binding, so they don't care what God said. It doesn't matter how many times God said that it's been abolished. They're going to keep binding it because that's what they want instead of just accepting what God says. Listen, we appreciate you listening so much in those good calls tonight. And that email address, Ken, is patdonahue at bellsouth.net. If anybody wants to contact me, send me an email, patdonahue at bellsouth.net. If you want to have a free one-hour phone Bible study with me sometime at your convenience, call or text me at 256-682-9753. If you want that list of verses that proves the Old Testament is still not binding, 256-682-9753.